Over the last couple of weeks, we have looked at Zechariah, and we've looked at the context of which Zechariah was in, as well as the children of Israel. And we're looking at how the people of Israel who were taken back to Jerusalem to build the temple of God, how they ended up just struggling, struggling for significance, struggling with enthusiasm, struggling with the desire to fulfill the work God had given them. And for 17 years, 17 years, how many people here are 17? One, Kerry, all right, all right, we'll go with that. 17, 17 that, that, that's a, that is a teenager's life. And what we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks is how do I move from this place of performance and frustration spiritually and, and move to the abundant and victorious life that Jesus had promised us relationally? How do we move that? And, and what is, like, what is the truth that impacts and impresses upon our hearts that moves us into action from being, I guess you could say, religious-based to being relationship-based in our walk with the Lord? And this is the message that Zechariah was given. When you remember in Zechariah 1, the message was, Return to me, says the Lord. Last week, as, as Brad so clearly expressed, we looked at the, the blessing and the favor and the presence we have received from the Lord. So today, we're going to look at Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. This is a verse that we all know. It is a verse that we use to encourage others. It is a verse that we take ourselves and cling to to help refocus us as to the source of the means by which we can do what God has called us to do. So if you allow me, we'll open in a word of prayer, and then we'll look at the scriptures together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. Thank you so much that we can come before you, and we can open your word, and we can hear you speak to us. I pray that you will give us ears that are open to hear what you have to say to us through the scriptures. That you will give us eyes to see your hand at work in all of our lives. That you will give us the courage to respond to the convictions that you lay upon our heart. And that we might be doers of the word and not just hearers only. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A number of years ago, Malcolm Gill came to the church and he did a preaching seminar and he was talking about in the preaching seminar how when you read the word of God we have to bear in mind that the message is going out to a specific person or people at a specific time for a specific purpose and as we read the scriptures what we have to ask the spirit of God to do is enable us to transpose or to move those same truths and those same thoughts and those same realities into our 21st century context and and, and so regardless of whether for example um Allison is not going into a promised land leading a military campaign to possess it 
No, Alison lives in over the shore, you know, and, and, and does what she does. Uh, Uncle Fred is not leading a nation out of slavery and bringing them into a promised land. He's not, he's not doing that. But the message that God had given Moses or given Joshua, those thoughts, those themes of God's faithfulness, of, of God's mercy, of God's holiness, of God's wrath, of God's grace, and so on, they all apply to us in our context today as well. So as we read today's verse, I'm going to look at one verse today, guys. And this is just going to be one verse. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. And this is what the Lord tells Zechariah. He says, So he, God, said to me, quote, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but my, by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. We read of a specific word in verse 6 given to a specific person, Zechariah, to communicate that message to another person, Zerubbabel, for a specific purpose, which is the building of the temple. Now, the uniqueness of that message to Zerubbabel through Zechariah has applications for you and I in the 21st century, whether as a student, whether as a parent, whether as a grandparent, whether as an employer or an employee. You see, Zerubbabel was a governor in Judah, and he returned to Jerusalem with all of the exiles from Babylon to begin this work in the temple. Now, as, as the opposition arose, as they sought to build this temple, people became disheartened. People became discouraged. People just didn't want to do it anymore. Like I said, 17 years, they remained in their homes while the house of God, the work of God, remained stagnant. wasn't going anywhere. And Zerubbabel, as governor... It was his job or his task to try and, for want of a better word, motivate his people to be about the work of God. He wanted to enthuse them. He wanted to encourage them. He wanted to stir them to be about the work that God had set them free for. Now, parents, raise your hand. Parents, grandparents, please raise your hands. All right. All right. Cool. Cool. Um, if, if, if you're a leader of any sort, whether it be in the home, whether it be at work, whether it be, oh, I don't know, as part of a team or whatever it might be, have you noticed how impossible it is to get people to do what you want them to do when they don't want to do it? Can you imagine Zerubbabel looking at these people that are just apathetic, that just can't be bothered, and he's saying, we've got to be about this. As a pastor, I sometimes experience this, and I can sometimes look and think, wow, you know, what, why aren't people doing this, or why aren't people doing that? And it can be very easy to start there looking, ooh, looking at you, and I'm looking at you, and I'm looking at you, and I'm, and I'm complaining about you and what you're doing and what you're not doing, and I can do this. Now, I could try to motivate you. I could guilt you into it. I could guilt you. What sort of Christian do you think you are? I can manipulate you. I can bribe you. I can force you. I'm big enough. Do this. Jenna, do this. Slap, slap. You know, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. Just, just, 
That was terrible. Like, <laughs> Ariella. I'm sorry. Forgive me. But uh, okay, I, I, I could do that. But what does that result in? What does that result in? That results in me driving you to do something that you don't want to do that soon runs out of steam. Why? Because you find out that I'm just all talk. Because you find out that I can't bribe you. I've got no money. That I can't manipulate you because I've got nothing to manipulate you with. I can't guilt you into it because what, what, what can I do? There's nothing in there. There's nothing in there. Whenever we sit there and try to force something ourselves, what happens? It ends up drying up very, very quickly. And that's why this word goes to Zerubbabel through the prophet Zechariah. And we're going to break down this passage or this verse in chapter 4, verse 6. We read this. The word of the Lord to Zerubbabel is that it is not by might. It is not by might. That word might means strength physically. An overwhelming physical strength. It might be a, a force of men. It might be a, a force of power. But it's basically, the, in layman's terms, one's own firepower to affect the external situation that one encounters. That's what it means. When it talks about might, it's about what I can do to affect the influences around me or the environment around me. I have these lights here. What can I do? What does my might do? I can switch off the light. I can move this over here. That's what I can do. That's the limit. But God says to Zerubbabel through Zechariah, it is not by your strength. It's not by your own firepower. It doesn't matter how much you can bench in the gym. It doesn't matter what you can lift when you're out and about. It doesn't matter how fast you can run away from something or to something. It doesn't matter. It is not by your physical ability. For all the resources available to, Zachar to Zerubbabel as the governor of Judah, for all the authority that his position held, even to a refugee people that have returned home, he could not force them. He could not manipulate them. He could not threaten them. He could not bribe them to get them to put their hand to the plow. He couldn't. He couldn't do that at all. When the word of the Lord comes to Zerubbabel again and says it is not by might and it is not by power. Once again, it's talking about a personal power. It's talking about our human power. This word here is referring to the firm and assertive authority that we have. The adaptability for us to change and the substance to enforce something. If, in other words... If might refers to physical strength, power refers to your personal willpower. What you try to do. Again, in layman's terms, my layman's terms, it is the intangible authority or force of will that we hold specifically over what we do ourselves. We often hear this, you know, uh, how, how the man of integrity is not one who controls others, but one who controls the self, you know. That's what the word power is talking about here. So God is saying to Zerubbabel, it's not by might. It's not by who you can punch. It's not by who you can guilt. It's not, it's not by might. It's not by power. It's not what you think about yourself. It's not the force of will that you have. It's not that. And I want to camp here for a moment. I want to camp here for a moment. I want to have a look at this. 
I hear the word of the Lord challenging me in this situation, and I pray that as we listen and work through these two things, it'll speak to you as well. As has been shared previously in the last two weeks, we often, we often can fall into the state of apathy, the state of just like, nah, the state of, of going through the motions, the state of just of, of losing our joy in the Lord. And, and for some reason, our relationship with the Lord just goes more and more and more distant. And it's, it's just, maybe it's just busyness. Maybe it's just the hardship of, of being parents of little children. Maybe it's the pressures of what you're going on, of what's going on at school. But we find that we end up moving further and further and further away from the Lord. Maybe we have just gone comfortable with going through the motions of, of being a Christian. That's why these words really sort of cry out to me. This is what it teaches me. If it's not by my physical might that I can get people to do something, man, it's not by my personal power that even I can actually get to do something, then I'm like, well, then what is it that I can do? What, what, what that... No amount, how can I put this? No amount of structure that I set in place in my life can change a person's heart. No amount of religious ritual that I set up can actually transform me inwardly. They are wonderful tools. They are wonderful tools. Please don't get me wrong, but they are the means to an end. They are not the end in itself. I want you to understand this. You see, I, I look at my state of apathy, and what do I do? I try harder. I look at my state of fruitlessness in my relationship with Jesus, what do I do? I do more. I look at how just nothing seems to be working for me spiritually, so what do I do? I get busy trying to substitute my relationship with Jesus with activity. That's what I end up doing. I want you to understand something. We can always conform ourselves outwardly, but what Jesus is concerned with is our transformation inwardly. That's what he is concerned with. I remember telling you this illustration many years ago. It's like there was a little girl who has been very defiant to her parents, and, and some of you may relate, but has been very defiant to her parents. And the mother was saying, sit down. And she's like, no. Sit down. And you're like, no. It gets a bit louder. She goes, sit down now, or whatever it was going to be. So she sits down. What does she say to her mother? I'm sitting down on the outside, but inside I'm standing up. What do we do when we conform? On the outside, it looks great. But see, God's not interested on the appearances of the outside. He's concerned with the heart. He sees the heart. He wants to shepherd the heart. He wants to pastor hearts. He wants to connect to hearts. That's what he's about. For me, even as a Christian, not, you know, not as a pastor, but as a Christian, 
The goal of our, of our time in the Word, the goal of our time in fellowship here, the goal of our time in prayer, the goal of our, of our spending time with one another and investing into one another, whether as parents to our children, whether as husbands to our wives, whether to our, us to our parents, the goal of all of that is what? Is for our hearts to connect with God himself. You see, they went to the tabernacle for what reason? To meet with God because God said in Exodus, there I will meet with you. There I will commune with you, right? What happens is that the people of Israel start making the tabernacle God. They substitute the means to meet with him as being God himself. And we have to be very careful we don't fall into that same trap. I wrote here, there might be an outward conforming that gives us the appearance of true joy and of true relationship, but ultimately, because the source is my might and my power, that well soon dries up and we end up being exactly where we were before, frustrated, tired, and weary. So what can we do? If it's not by might and it's not by our power, we have to do this first. First, I want you to take note of this, okay? We have to reframe our lives from God's perspective. We have to see our lives from God's perspective and not our own, from a heavenly perspective, because God's view of what we are going through is most times very different from what we see, from the view that we have. When we're able to view our lives from God's perspective, we will then start to feel what God feels. We will then start to respond the way God would want us to respond because we know that he is doing something and something that we don't fully understand. And what I like is what one guy said this, God's emotions are a direct reflection of God's truth. So the first thing that you and I need to do is we need to take some time to reframe how we view our lives, that it's from his perspective and not my own. Case in point, and I know you've, I've babbled on about this in the past. Am I still talking slow enough, sister? Thank you. I look at 2017 as one of the worst years I've had because of what happened with my daughter, Emily. And I know that in the harshness of what we were going through, I can now look now in hindsight and see God's working in her life and in her situation. Do I fully understand? No. Have I gotten all the answers as to why? No. Will I ever get on this side of eternity? Probably not. But I know God is good, I know God loves me, I know of his faithfulness and of his care, and in that I will take comfort that from his perspective, he was working about in her life, and in mine, and in my family's, and in ours, a glory that cannot be fully understood. His glory. Even in that situation, when I see it from his perspective, well, while it may not completely answer everything for me, I am content. So that's what I need to do. I need to reframe. And once again, like, I still remember when my brother Jono, I was weeping, I was, just, I was crying. I remember Jono came and he prayed with me. And knowing the peace of God as my brother prayed for me was absolutely amazing. And I look back on that and I thank God for him and for everyone else that prayed. 
But I see the love of God demonstrated through all of you when you supported us during that time. And even now. Secondly, so the first one is about reframing our lives. The second one, we need a strategy, I guess, for correcting our misinterpretation. All right. What I mean by that is this. When something bad happens in our lives, we automatically say it's an attack from the enemy. It may be. Or it may be something that God has allowed in our lives to teach us, to mold us, to increase our dependence upon him. I was talking with Pastor Roger on Friday night. He goes to Sri Lanka on a regular basis, and he says the church over there just on fire for the Lord. And he said they were reaching out, they were planting churches, leading people to the Lord, discipling them, um, especially during the Civil War, when they had the Civil War going on. And he said, now that the war's ended, he goes, how's it going now? And he goes, fire's gone, bro. Fire's gone. Once the, the persecution, once the difficulty, once the hardship sort of subsided, people relaxed into getting comfortable, getting apathetic, getting relaxed in their faith. So sometimes that hardship is for us to increase our dependence upon him. So we need a strategy. Um, simply trying harder to believe the Bible, simply doing our best to live and look like Jesus will eventually end in failure because the fruit of the Spirit is not done. The fruit of the Spirit is born. The fruit of the Spirit is growing. Um, my sister Helen, she has a garden, a garden where she is. She's planted and she's got her garden. She's done a great job. I had the privilege of going to her house and having lunch. And if you ever get invited, go. <laughs> Food is brilliant. Food, I mean, and the fellowship. Fellowship is brilliant. <laughs> Food is better. But anyway, okay, so... But she, she, what, what she has done, what she has done in her garden is that she has created the optimum area for her vegetables and things to grow as best as they can. She doesn't make them grow. She doesn't plant it and go, grow, bigger, faster. She doesn't do that. At least I hope not. What she does is she plants and then she creates the ultimate atmosphere the ultimate conditions the optimum conditions so that growth can take place so what can we do as we one reframe and as we look for the strategy to sort of recorrect our misinterpretation of things what we need to do is create the optimum conditions for the spirit of god to move in our hearts to have the fruit of the spirit born in us now, please don't misunderstand me. Discipline has a place. Ritual has a place. Ceremony has its place, but they are means through which we are brought to him, not the destination. So if you are a pastor, if you are a leader, if you're a father or a wife or a boss, whatever it is, we can either try to parent by guilting people into it or as parents connect with their hearts. We can lead by forcing people or we can sit down and say, okay, Lord, how is it that you want to do or what is it that you want to do because my might and my power fail in so many ways. That's why when we read the last part of it, when he says it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. But what does that mean for us today? 
What does that mean? That if, if my might and my power is of no use, why is it that God's spirit succeeds? How does God's spirit succeed? For Zerubbabel, as an overburdened governor, this word reminded him that God's spirit had to enable the people's hearts to be about his work. God's spirit had to convict of sin. God's spirit had to stir a person's desire. God's spirit had to work within other people's lives. See, it's God's spirit that tests heart tests hearts. It's God's spirits that convict of sin. It is God's spirit that brings change. And we know that God's spirit moves because we read in Ezra 6 verse 16 that after 17 years of nothing, the, the, the temple was completed. And how did God do this? God did this through his prophets. God did this through Zechariah. God did this through Zerubbabel. So how does that look for me? How does that look for us as his church, for our lives as the people of God? Because in a way, we are like Zerubbabel, and we are building. We are building into people's lives. We are building and playing a part in building the church of God. And we've got this very, it's not a simple, but we've got this very simple call laid out for us, and through which the Spirit will succeed where our efforts will always fail. So we have to, sorry, I'm going to get my towel. Okay. When we know the truth in our hearts, when we know the truth of God in our hearts, thank you very much. Sorry, I'm starting to sweat. When we know the truth of God in our hearts, in our hearts this is what happens. Because the optimum conditions have been made, fruit will grow naturally. It'll just happen. As strange as that sounds. And it's really weird because I've been going on this journey as of late, as I have been reconnecting with the Lord myself personally, as I've been discovering who Jesus is and the greatness of his love for me, as I've been looking at the gospel as to the extent of how much God demonstrated that love by sending his son, as, I, as I've been discovering that, it's really weird, but I am no longer sort of interested in some of the things I used to be interested in. People ask me, you've been watching rugby? No, I love the game of rugby, but I haven't touched it. And that's not because I'm like, I, I deliberately went out and said I spent too much time watching sport. It's just happened. And I thought, wow, okay. Where the, where, when I see something that I know I shouldn't be looking at, the conviction of sin upon my heart, well, oh, wow. And then to move away from it. I didn't enforce that. That's just been growing the more I've been dwelling and reconnecting with Jesus. And he brings about those changes. And here's what's, here's what's really cool. When we have the truth of God in our hearts, what God does is he persuades us by his spirit that his way is not only the only way, but the best way. He brings that about. And that's what's so exciting. And, and, and what's really neat is this is what God desires in each of your lives. It's exactly what he wants to do in us and with us and through us. So I have to make, as I shared about Helen, I have to position myself. I have to position myself in my life where I can best hear him. 
I need to position myself with him so that when he speaks, I know it's, it's, it's really, it's really, I always use my wife as a, as a great example. So we've been married nearly 30 years, and in that 30 years I've been married to my wife, because I've spent time with her in those 30 years, and I reckon anybody who's been married for anything longer than like 10, 15, what you'll notice is this, you'll recognize when your wife is upset. She doesn't say anything, but she's got that look. That look. (laughs) Uncle David. (laughs) And it's true, she's got that look, or she goes very silent. You know, or, or just a one-word answer. But you also recognize when she's happy. You recognize when she's mischievous. You recognize when she's frustrated. But the only way you recognize those things is how? By spending time with her. So it is with the Lord. Somebody shared with me, how do you recognize that it's the hand of God? You recognize it's the hand of God as you spend time with him. So, this is what he does. This is what he wants to do in us. Because when we think about, okay, he wants to do this by his spirit, not by your strength, not by your might, but by his spirit. Look at this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I just want to, okay, we know the verse. We are to be his witnesses, right? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We, we, see it, we, we hear how the Holy Spirit will come upon them, and it says the Holy Spirit comes upon them so that they might be his witnesses. What is a witness? A witness testifies of what he's seen, of what he's heard, and of what he's experienced. Look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. Okay? John gives an example. This is what it is, of what I've seen, of what I've heard, and what I've experienced. In other words, for me, as a person who knows Jesus, as a witness, I am to share with you, whether you're a Christian or not, I'm to share with you, to share and share with others, whether Christian or non-Christian alike, the reality of my relationship with Jesus in every facet of life. You're always a witness, not just on a Sunday, not just when you're preaching the gospel, not just when you're out and about on a, on a Sunday afternoon having lunch. You are always a witness. You're a witness to your children, the way you conduct yourself. You're a witness to your spouse. You're a witness to your neighbors. You're, you're a witness continually. And what's really neat is this, is that if you are a witness, we are told that you will have the Spirit of God upon you in order to be that witness. That's what's really exciting. And so even in those difficult times, when you're getting upset or whatever, we, I was looking after the twins this week, uh, such they're four years old now, beautiful girls, and, and I, I never got to read my Bible I never got time to pray. I never got time to, because it's just go, go, go continually. And, and, and I sympathize with the likes of Jazz and Amanda and, and everybody with the little kids running around. I was like, wow. But even in that busyness, I got to just sit there and say, Lord, help me to draw near to you at this time. Just help me to draw near to you at this time as I look after the girls. Give me strength so I can show them love, so I can show them patience, so I can show them mercy. And you know what God did? He said, yeah, okay, Joe, here you go. And I, I, I took them out just by myself, and we went to a park. We went and played. We actually, we did quite a few things. Went to a lolly shop, and that was really nice. But it was a real blessing to do that and have God do that. But it's, see, Jesus wants you to experience him in life, not in the four walls of this building, but in life. So how we do that? So we can be his witnesses. 
which means then at I as his witness, I am to Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in me richly. Let the word, this is part of me positioning myself, not only to be a witness, but to let the word of Christ. We, all, we encourage you all the time to read the word because the word of God is authored by the spirit of God. If it's by his spirit, he's doing it through his word. And it is his spirit through the word of God that ministers to us. I mean, we read this, how he renews our mind in Romans 12, 2. We read how he lights our path in Psalm 119, 105. We read how the word works in our hearts in Psalm 119, 11. We read how the word revives or refreshes our souls in Psalm 19, 7. We read how the word brings us joy in Psalm 19, 8. Why? Because the word of God is a person. It is who Jesus is. And when he takes his word, he moves our hearts. He stirs within us a hunger that cannot be satisfied outside of Jesus Christ. It has to be in him. Now, it's like when you read in, in Luke 24 when the two are walking on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus says when he's talking to them, he opens the scriptures and he reveals all things in the scriptures concerning himself. Now in verse 31 of uh, Luke 24 when Jesus disappears, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? The burning within the heart, that was the spirit of God taking the word of God and impacting their lives. You'll notice, and I, always, I share this, G. Campbell Morgan makes this comment. He says, you'll notice that their hearts burned not when they were talking to Jesus, but when Jesus was talking to them. That's when the heart was burning. That's when the enthusiasm was stirred up. That's when the excitement was there. It was when Jesus was speaking to them, not the other way around. And so maybe, maybe when we open the word that we pray and just ask the Lord, speak to me, show me who you are, cause my heart to burn so that through the word he might minister to you. So yeah, we can be as witnesses because that's what the spirit enables us to do. In order to do that, we let the word of God dwell in us richly, the word of Christ dwell in us richly in Colossians 3.16. But what I like is this one, having us, for us, having the understanding of what God does, how he works. What's Romans 8.28 say? That all things work together for good to those that love God, right? The spirit can use other people. The Spirit can use other situations. The Spirit can use even failures in our lives to bring us back to himself. He can use it for his good, for our good, should I say. For example, Samson. Samson experienced the power of God even in his immaturity. And as we, as we look later on in his life, he experiences the favor of God in his defeat, if you read in Judges verse chapter 13 through to chapter 16, you find out that in his death, he did more work and accomplished more in his death than he ever did in his life. Even in that bad situation, God brought about good for his people. You look at David. David experienced as, as the king of Israel. Well, actually, no, he experienced God's presence as a shepherd boy. He experienced as a, as, a, as a celebrity. He experienced it as a fugitive. He experienced it as a king. And he even experienced it as an adulterer. 
that the love of God and disciplining him, the love of God, even in his failure, if you read 1 Samuel 16 all the way to 2 Samuel 11, you see God's favor demonstrated in every situation from God's perspective, not from David's. Because all things work together for good. Elijah experienced the blessing of God in his victories on Mount Carmel, yes, but he also experienced the comfort of God in his failure in 1 Kings 19. The prodigal son had his connection to his father appreciated in his falling away, while his brother who stayed home overlooked the blessing of that connection, even though he stayed back there as the good son in Luke 15. Even the crucifixion of Christ for our sin, the darkest moment for the creator of the world, ended up for the greatest of our benefit in having the opportunity to have our sin forgiven. You see, the word of God is given for us to identify the workings of the spirit in our lives. When I sit there and say how all things work together for good, yes, there are a whole bunch of things that are going. My sister Caris has had a cough for like ever. She's worse than Cass at the moment. I mean, has Cass still got a cough? Oh, that's terrible. But even in that, even in that, while we look at something as simple as that, if we look at things from God's perspective, what is God teaching me through this? How are you revealing yourself to me, Lord, through this? But it means then, if I want to have that type of spiritual clarity, if I want to have the ability to recognize God's hand, like I said, I need to spend time with him to recognize those things even in the, the darkest and most frustrating, difficult times we go through. That's what it means that it's not by us. It, look, I just want to go on a bit of a tangent here. If us as Christians have found it so difficult to re-enthuse or reinvigorate or refresh our joy in the Lord, you know why? It's because we are trying too hard. It's we're trying too hard. We're trying to manipulate the situation to make us feel better about ourselves when he says, no, it's not by what you do. It's not by how you do it. It's by my spirit. It's by me you have done this. This is why, this is why when you read in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 3, he says, return to me, says the Lord. This is why as he makes his declarations in Zechariah 2 about his blessings, his favor, and his presence. It's about going to him. And it's why here, all our human efforts, all our human attempts, all the strength we put into place will never be good enough in developing our relationship with him. That comes. The, the best we can do, the most we can do, is position ourselves in a place where we can best hear from the Lord. Now that may mean this. That may mean, for me, not watching so much TV. That may mean, for me, not reading things that I shouldn't be reading. Well, that, that may mean, for me, that I don't spend so much time at the gym. That's what it may mean for me. For what it may mean for you, it might be something different. And that's why you, as the Lord calls out to you, you need to ask him, what is it, Lord, that you desire me to do that I can best hear from you? that I may best hear from you and your spirit. And that when he reveals it to you, you'll be surprised. Because that's what he desires with you as well. I like this. I'll close on this quote. Uh, Joni Erickson 
Tata says this, real satisfaction comes not in understanding God's motives, but in understanding his character, in trusting in his promises, and in leaning on him and resting in him as the sovereign who knows what he is doing and does all things well. Who knows what he's doing and does all things well. So I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, regardless of where you're at spiritually, regardless of what you're going through in life, regardless of difficulties that you face, I would encourage you to take some time to step back, not focus on what you can do, not to focus on what the strengths that you have, but rather position yourself in a way that the Spirit of God can minister to your hearts and show you where you can go next. I'd be interested to hear what you have to say. I'd be interested to see what God teaches you in the situation that you're in as well. So with that, allow me to close in a word of prayer and we'll uh, spend some time fellowshipping. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for the promise, the same promise given to Zerubbabel, the same promise that applies to us. That it is not by our might, that it is not by our power, but it is by your spirit. It is your spirit that gives life. It is your spirit that illuminates. It is your spirit that transforms. And I pray that you will transform us even now. Help us to go from here today with the truths that have been laid out before us and to, to heed how you speak to us and respond accordingly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.